90% born in the church, raised in the church, saved in the church, married and buried in the church, will never share Jesus with another person. No one had ever sat down with us and said, this is the job of a missionary. It was like getting in a plane in the New Testament and getting off the plane in the Old Testament. It was like I had flown into hell. We saw what, what darkness was. We'd seen darkness in Somalia, and all of a sudden now we saw darkness up front and personal in our family. But we, um, we had no idea what was coming. Out of the ashes of, of Somalia and after the death of our son, we were compelled to return to some of the toughest places uh, in the world for the gospel. There was something we needed to know. Is Jesus worth it? There begins uh, a pilgrimage of sitting at the feet of believers in persecution and ask them, teach us. believe that there is a free church and a suffering church. There's just the church. resurrected Christ himself. The week before last, um, we as a staff at the end of our staff retreat had opportunity to go and watch this movie called The Insanity of God. It only had little uh, select showings. Um, it's originally a book by a Southern Baptist missionary by the same title, The Insanity of God. Uh, the man's name is Nick Ripkin. Uh, several decades ago, their story was in Kenya. Uh, they had a son that, uh, I don't know, maybe was about 12 years of age and had asthma. And he had an asthma attack and um, they were in Nairobi, Kenya and they were so far, far from the hospital that by the time they got to the hospital, he didn't make it. And uh, so Nick... Ripkin and their wife, they begin to ask the question, is Jesus worth it? Was it worth it for us to go to this place that other people might hear the gospel? 
but it cost us the life of our son. The reality was their son, if they'd been in the United States, there would have been medical care close enough. He would have made it, but he didn't make it. Um, Nick Ripken then started, um, I don't know if he was assigned, but the International Mission Board, I think, gave him the opportunity to go throughout the world to the persecuted church, to the places where people are um, at the edge, I would call it this morning, uh, where they are in countries that they can be killed because they are followers of Jesus. And, and he went and he spent, I think, months secretly meeting with the persecuted church, the secret church in China, Russia, Southeast Asia, uh, and he wanted to know what can you teach me about how do you make it uh, when many of you are killed when you know that your families sometimes their families were killed because they were followers of Jesus what can you teach me and then the ultimate question was, is Jesus worth it? I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I left the theater that night disturbed. I, you know, it was about an hour and a half long movie, and you got about two and a half minutes of it. Uh, and, and the word really that just came to my mind and my heart it was, no, this, this disturbs me to know that there are Christians around the world who put their, line, their lives on the line every day to be followers of Jesus. And the amazing thing, what Nick, Nick Ripken discovered was there was a joy and a vibrancy and a life that he quite honestly didn't know anything about because they lived life, as I would describe it this morning, on the edge. And you know what they discovered? Jesus is worth it. Even if it costs us our life, Jesus is worth it. I'll be honest with you this morning, though, that disturbs me. It disturbs me because it makes me consider my own Christian life. Hmm. And the word after disturbed that came to my mind was the word pathetic. Pathetic. I'm embarrassed to think this is this movie was a documentary and I just thought my Christian life is to use a Hebrew phrase <laughs> pathetic I'm embarrassed 
to think about my level of commitment and how I live, considering how they live. And I'll be honest with you, I came to the words of Paul for this Sunday morning out of Philippians, and it's going to have that, that maybe we would call a famous verse, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And, uh, I, and we saw this movie about two and a half weeks ago, I guess now, and I thought, the insanity of God. I don't know how else to relate it to you in a, in a better way than for you to get a taste of that and to think about the persecuted church and for us to spend just a few minutes this morning with the Apostle Paul as his life was on the edge, in prison, waiting trial, a good possibility that he would be executed because he was a Christian. Now, if I have to give you the historical context this morning, understand that this first Roman imprisonment History records that Paul was released. He went back out for about two to three years. He was rearrested, and about, oh, I don't know, four or five, six years after he writes Philippians and those other prison epistles, that he is beheaded. They executed Paul because he was a Christian. He gave the ultimate sacrifice of death and so even though as he writes Philippians uh, he doesn't pay that final price you're gonna see in his words this morning that he was on the edge he knew that there was a distinct possibility that they were gonna kill him for the sole reason that he was a Christian And um, I don't know, we read these verses and we kind of talk about this in theory. But the reality is, is there are people who are followers of Jesus today, right now, that are followers of Jesus at the risk of their very lives and the lives of their families. And their testimony, their words to us would be, Jesus is worth it. And in fact, there is a deeper faith and joy and life because they live at the edge. And so I'm a little embarrassed this morning to even preach this message. Uh, because my life hasn't been to the edge. I don't know the single time in my life ever that someone said, if you profess Christ as your Savior, then we're going to kill you right here. Uh, and so it's hard for me to... even apply this to my own life my pathetic life that lives so far from 
the edge because I want to make sure I'm comfortable and I'm secure. And, and I don't know. The reality is, is I would like to think if I was brought to the edge that I would stand firm and I would say, yes, I am a Christian. And if it costs me my life, it costs me my life. Uh, I want us to spend just a few moments looking at the words of Paul uh, as one, as a testimony. What would Paul say to us? What did he say to the Philippians? What is in his mind and his heart as he faces the real possibility of being executed for his faith? Um, let's just spend a few minutes this morning. Philippians 1, 19 through 26. And I understand this morning my tone is not as happy-clappy as I normally are or am, whatever the verb is supposed to be there. Uh, but I think I just... This sense of the seriousness that it's hard for me to flippantly talk to us today about little things that make us happy when I realize these words are serious and I, I would ask let's just we're in essence pulling up a chair to someone who's standing at the edge not knowing whether it's going to cost him his life and, and I wonder what is in the mind and the heart of Paul and this is what he says to his dear friends, the Philippians. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and supplication of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Look with me at what... Paul shares out of his heart. Verse 19, he says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul asked the Philippians, as his dear friends, pray for me. I want you to pray for me. And I'm trusting that as you pray for me and I receive the supply of God's Spirit, I think the, the word is that I'm going to remain, I'm going to stay true. I'm going to be faithful to the very end. 
It's kind of interesting that the first phrase that he uses there when he says, for I know this phrase, that this will turn out for my deliverance. This will turn out for my deliverance. <laughs> that is a quote, a direct quote uh, from the book of Job. It's, it's, and I looked it up in the NIV. My New, New King James says it a little bit different. But when Paul says this, he is quoting Job. Um, I'm supposed to know this. Job 13, 16. Job 13, 16. Job says, this will turn out for my deliverance. That's, that's interesting to me because the verse before this in Job is the, maybe the most famous verse in Job when Job says, though he slay me, yet will I hope or trust in Him. Though He slay me, yet will I trust or hope in Him. And then he goes on, Job says in the next verse, this will turn out for my deliverance. So I think one of the, one of the people in Paul's mind as he is on the edge with the possibility of martyrdom uh, Job's on his mind. What, what, is, what is the whole context of Job? Would Job serve God if, if God took everything away from him? He lost everything. Would Job serve God simply because God is God? If God did nothing for him, would he still remain true? If God took his family and his possessions and everything would from him would he still serve God and Job says though he slay me I will trust I will hope in him this will turn out for my deliverance I don't think Paul when he said this and was quoting Job was saying I know I'm going to get out of jail I know this is my deliverance because later on in the, in the scripture he says I, I don't know I don't know what's going to happen I'm hoping I'm trusting to see you again, Philippians, but I don't know. I think the word deliverance, which actually is the word for salvation there, uh, I think it's a broad term which Paul is saying, this will turn out for my redemption, my salvation. God will receive glory and God will work His plan. God will redeem even this. But Paul knew that might mean that he was going to have to die. But God would still be on the throne. God would be glorified. And God would have a purpose and a plan for it. And Paul was okay with that. This will turn out for my deliverance. In verse 20, he talks about his earnest expectation, his hope. I love this. I mean, if we're just looking at the heart of Paul as he stands on the brink of whether he's about to die or not. He said that in nothing that I would be ashamed. My hope, my expectation is that in nothing that happens to me that I would be ashamed to the name. Oh God, don't let me cower back. If they threaten to take my life, the final step 
of someone saying, now listen, if you're going to be a Christian, it's going to cost you your life. Would you give your life? Paul says, oh, if I come to that point, don't let me be ashamed to the name, but that with all boldness that Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, that Christ would be magnified. Do you understand we're looking at the heart and the mind of someone who's at the very edge? I haven't been there. I'm ashamed to even to talk about this as if I knew something about this. But Paul is there. And he said more than anything, he wants Christ to be magnified in his body, whether by death or by life. For me, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. Paul says, if I, and he, he kind of goes on and explains this later, but if I am to live, it will be about Christ. He didn't say, for me to live is my life. No, he substitutes his life for simply the word Christ. For me to live is Christ because there came a point in Paul's life that he gave up his own life for Christ. He's going to say it later in Philippians, that I have counted all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. I gave it all. He, it was the substituted life. I gave up my life. Well, he says it in Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me my life is not my own it is Christ's life and whatever he chooses to do Paul's desire his expectation his hope is that Christ would be magnified to die is gain Think about all the things we'll lose when we die. Paul says, I've already given up all of that. I don't have anything to lose here. Have you thought about that? How death could be gained? I think all the time we probably think subconsciously about what we're going to lose when we die. And Paul had come to the place in his life, if they took his life, it was going to be a gain. But you know the key to that? Is he had to give up everything that was his so that when he died, he lost nothing. I think most days we live so far from the edge in our comfort and security We're still wrapped up in the things of this world, whether it's jobs, possessions, hobbies, relationships, all the things that we're, we're looking to on a daily basis to give us fulfillment and joy and life. Paul says, I've already given up all of that, so if they were to kill me, 
it's going to be a gain for me. For to me to live is Christ. It will be the Christ life. And to die would be gain. Verse 22, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. What is the purpose? Paul says, but if God keeps me here, then I will live the Christ life and it will be a fruitful life. Paul wasn't, when he talks about heaven here, what strikes me is he's not just saying, I'm waiting until that day. Someday I'm going to die and I'm going to go to heaven. Paul's saying, no, in the time that I have here before I die, I will use it as Christ would use it. It will be fruitful labor. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. There will be a purpose. It will all be about the Christ life. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. Verse 23, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. One of the options is to stay in the labor and be fruitful to God's glory. The other option is to depart, which would be gain, and to be with Christ. This is one of those great verses. Um, and you need to just nail this down in your theology. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5, 8. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Christians, that's just one of those theological truths you need to just bank your life on. The day that you take your, the, the moment you take your last breath and and your soul slips out of your body, know that in the next instance, you will be in the presence of Christ. I thought it was kind of interesting the way Paul put it. Paul didn't even say, for me to depart this life, I will be in a better place. Do you know the most significant aspect of heaven that Paul draws out here? Jesus is going to be there. If I live my life for my Savior, when I close my eyes in death, when my eyes open in eternity, the first thing I'm going to see, I don't know, scrap all that theology and those little stories we're talking about, being at St. Peter's Gate, and blah, 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 blah. I don't know where that stuff comes from. No, to close your eyes in death and to open them in eternity, you will be in the presence of Christ, your Savior. You know where I think he got this? Now, this is Paul writing this. Do you know when we go back to the book of Acts, the first martyr, do you, if you put this together, the first martyr, the first person who died, that they killed, Acts 7, Stephen, who began to boldly proclaim Christ in Jerusalem. He was one of the, the first deacons. And they brought him before the authorities. They were so enraged. Peter had this great sermon. It was a feel-good sermon. The gist of the sermon is, he said to the Jews, he went through their whole history. I think it's the longest speech recorded in the book of Acts, Stephen's sermon. And what he said is, you have had a rebellious heart. Every time God tried to work in your life, you rebelled as the people of God. You're stubborn and stiff-necked. Oh, it was, there was an altar call that day. Yeah. And they picked up stones. Now, at the end of the story, before I read that section, the first time that Paul, known by his Hebrew name, Saul, is mentioned in the book of Acts, it says, and they, those who stoned Stephen took off their, their, their cloak 
and they laid it at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was there for the death of the first martyr. Not, oh, it, God had a plan. And it, in, in Acts, it says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says, and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And it infuriated him and they, them, the mob, and they ran and they killed him. They stoned him to death. Saul of Tarsus as a young man would have stood there and watched Stephen die in a deep sense of faith and faithfulness and to say as I stand here today, God has already opened the windows of heaven and I can see God and Jesus standing there. You know, uh, I, I don't have time to preach Acts 7. Jesus is seen in the Scriptures as seated at the right hand of God. But when Stephen sees him, Jesus is standing. The implication is God the Father is, is there and Jesus is seated in the place of authority at His right hand. And when there is one who is at the point of the edge and they're about to kill Him, Jesus stands. And He says, Come. So when Paul says in Philippians to depart and be with Christ, I think, I think he had thought about Job, the martyr, uh, Job, and all that went on with Job. Would I serve God for naught, as it says? I think he thought of Stephen, that first martyr, who died in a deep sense of faith in Christ. He says in verse 24, Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful to you. And then he concludes and he says, And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress. That word progress is the same word he used in 1.12 when he's talked about the furtherance, the advance of the gospel. What he wanted to see was their progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Hmm. So Paul, at the edge, with the real, very real possibility that they're about to kill him, these are his words, and this is his heart. This is what he shares. And I remind you of where we started in the book of Philippians and we will stay. The secret to joy. I'm saying Paul was standing at the edge with the real possibility that he was about to give his life for being a Christian. The ultimate step, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate price, and there was joy. And you know what occurred to me? 
is that the depth of our joy is determined by the degree of our death to this life. Let me say that again. The depth of our joy is determined by the degree of our depth I'm sorry the degree of our death to the things of this world I would contend this morning that the persecuted Christians around the world Stephen Paul other martyrs will have a depth to their joy that probably I will never have doesn't that seem ironic that when the world brings you to the point of giving your life for the cause of Christ that there would be a greater joy in that than could be experienced any other way. The depth of joy is determined by the degree of our death to this life. I understand today that's not a real happy, clappy message this morning. But as I studied this, and I meditated on it and God spoke to me and I said what is it that we learn about joy what we learn about joy is the depth of joy will be determined by the degree that we die to ourselves and as long as there are things in our lives that we are holding on to that we are so wrapped up in that we cling to until we walk to the edge and we come to the place that we I don't, I don't know if we'll ever any of us in this room will ever be brought to the place where we have to give our physical lives and yes that's the ultimate sacrifice I, that's what the, we're right that was the power if you watch if you ever get to see the documentary and we hope to show it in church sometime the insanity of God. There is a joy in the persecuted church until you come to the point you say, listen, if you kill me, you kill me. But I've even died to my own life if that's what it takes. But you know what? I'm afraid we sell ourselves way short of that oh I think there's a lot of things between us and the edge where death is that we're not willing to give up for the cause of Christ and what this scripture and what I learned from Paul is the depth of our joy will be determined by the degree of death 
to those things that we say, okay, God, I'm going to die to that. It may be a career. It may be material possessions, a relationship. It may be our children. Oh, I can't, y'all, I don't. Mm. One of the stories of a man in Russia when he knew they were coming to get him, to imprison him, knowing that he might never see his family again, he looked at his wife, and I believe it was a son, and he said, someday, if I hear in prison that they have killed you, I want you to know today that I'll be the proudest father ever. That you were willing to give your life. And I'm going, oh, wait a second. I don't know. It may be a job. It may be money, retirement. Oh, people today, it could simply be the opinions of others. that we're so concerned about that we're not willing to die to what other people say and think and speak about us. We're not even willing to lose face when our brothers and sisters around the world are willing to give their lives. I'm afraid we sell ourselves out for far less. We are too wrapped up in our own lives. We live too far from the edge. We play it safe. Nick Ripkin in the documentary said there is only a resurrection after a cross. The early the persecuted church taught him that there is a power that only comes when you can look face death in the face and say if I must die then I must die you only have a resurrection power when you've had a cross that you've died Jesus put it this way he said anyone who would seek to find his life will lose it but he who would lose his life for my sake will find it. There is somewhere in the midst of this between where we are and the ultimate sacrifice of death. I don't know. I think most of us draw a line somewhere. And we say, well, I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice that. But there's some things that I'm not going to. And I'm telling you today what I learned from Paul's life is that the depth of our joy will be determined by the degree of death to those things in this life. And here's my last point.
the irony. The irony is that those things that we are not willing to give up for Christ will be the very things that steal our joy. You're going to have to think about that one for a while. If we can't get past the opinions of others, we're not willing to die to what people say and think about us, then it will be the opinion of others that will steal our joy. We could go down the whole list of the things that we're not willing to give up. I can't prove that point. I believe it's true that the irony is those very things that you're not willing to die to will be the very things that will steal your joy. And only when you die to those things will the depth of your joy uh, increase and be greater. I understand this morning that this has been rather heavy. But it's the scripture I came to. This is how this had to be presented. This is not a happy, clappy thing. What God wants to do is bring us to the point where we are willing to lose it all. And Paul's going to say it later in Philippians. To lose it all. And I'm telling you, it may not make any sense to us, but there is a vastness of joy there that we will experience no other way than losing it all, or at least be willing to lose it all. So I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. Brother Shane's going to come. Um, hmm. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I guess what's on my heart is for some of you there is something I don't know. I don't know if God can bring you all the way to the edge today. I don't know if God can bring me all the way to the edge today. But I think for some, there are some things in your life that you know you need to die to. And I'm telling you, those things that you haven't died to are the very things that are stealing your joy. And until you surrender those things. And so this morning, Byron and I are here. We can talk with you. We can pray with you. But the altar is open. Um, as you will come and you will lay those things at the feet of Jesus today. Grace.
Oh, 